Thank you so much for sitting down to talk to me today. Um, I thought we would start with a very straightforward question, um, which is, what does home mean to you? Being a foreigner living in America, I, I get asked that question quite often. And so since I've been living here, I've been thinking about home uh, more often than I would, would have liked sometimes. Um, one would give you this straightforward answer to this question, which is, you know, as Elvis Priestley says, <laughs> home is where the heart is. Um, but, and, and I might take it from Elvis and, and push it a little, anatomically speaking. Because for me, the heart stands at the crossroad between my stomach and my brain. And so I think that that, that, sort of approaches my idea of what home means. I think I'm, I'm sort of, I see home as living in that strange space between the gastropod or the, the gastronome, mm -hmm. which are very close to each other in my view, and the poet on the other side. So for me, home um, is something that has a strong connection with language and something that has a strong connection with my stomach. Um, in a sense, um, I think if I can quote, there, there's, there's a wonderful passage by Francis Ponge mm -hmm. He's a French poet. He wrote this portable little book. It's called The Nature of Things, mm -hmm. or Les Parties Pris des Choses. Um, so technically on the side of things. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a book that has been written in a tragic period of the history of Europe. It was written in 1942. And strangely enough, Francis Ponge starts thinking about objects and about how objects define our relationship with the world. And so I'm going back to the gastropod. I would like to quote from one of his uh, prose poem. It's called The Snail, actually snails. And he says, unlike the gastronome, that dry land breed, which also follows its stomach, these gastropoda snails are fond of humid earth. Go on, they advance at full length, adhering to it all the way. They lug some along, they eat some, excrete some. They traverse it, it traverses them. This is interpenetration in the best of taste, tone on tone, you might say with one passive element, one active. The passive nour nourishing as it baits the active, which moves from place to place while eating. So I, I always thought about snails in relationship with home and language because they are this fascinating creature who have no choice. 
they carry their home on their back. The, paradoxically, the, the only time they're not at home is when they move. But I find fascinating the way they move. So they eat their way almost across the world. They have a strong connection with the land. And that's sometimes how I feel. <laughs> I, I eat my way through, uh, through my, I mean, I, I eat my way in a, in a, in a sense uh, as a way of relating to the world outside. Um, so I, that's beautiful and really interesting. Um, I, I want to ask about the eating your way, if we can break it down a little. So the idea of taking your environment and ingesting it and, and incorporating it into, when we go to eating, it feels almost like your physical right. constitution, um, a melding with an environment. Do you, can you say more yeah. about what speaks to you about that? Yes, I, I, I am a very voracious being. <laughs> I, I eat food, I eat poetry, I eat books. Um, <laughs> but, but eating for me is a, is, a, is a very, very interesting sort of process because it's never just active as for the snail, right? Um, they traverse the land, right? So the eat their way through the land, but the land traverses them. Mm -hmm. And so, in a sense, since I've been living abroad, I, I felt that my identity has been negotiated in this sort of process between eating and being eaten. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and it's fine, it's not anything cannibalistic, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, it's a process where you, you have to be vulnerable enough um, in order to encounter the other, you have to be vulnerable enough to offer yourself up to be eaten. Um, there's, there's a wonderful quote from a movie. It's called Big Night, uh, sort of Italian-American movie uh, about the culture of eating. And the main character, Primo, of course, <laughs> like first course, um, at a certain point, is 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 desperate. He feels he's losing his identity, and he says something that touched me profoundly. He says, "This country is eating me alive." And in a sense, that that can be interpreted in the most negative sense as a complete loss of identity. But I learned in my time here that being eaten alive is a great way to learn about other cultures. Mm -hmm. um, do you have particular ways in which you, you think about the way in which American culture has eaten you? I mean, are there, are there specific things that strike you as from the outside in? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very puzzling. To me, to me, America is, is a great mystery, especially the American supermarket. <laughs> but because you, you, you name things in the same way, but names lose their, their, their sense 
especially when it comes to food. You know, a typical example, pizza, mm. right? Pizza here, for me, does not not correspond <laughs> to, to what I, to the usual meaning I ascribe to that word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, uh, it, you know, is a, is a sort of shock, shocking mm-hmm. um, um, shocking relationship with something that you think so familiar, that you think you ought to be so familiar, and then it presents itself as something completely different. And at the beginning, it hurts a little, uh-huh. right? You, you struggle to find that, that familiarity. You want it. You want to feel comfortable. But then you learn that this, this, this comfort actually keeps you alive. This, this constantly being on the edge of having to interpret reality in a continuously renewed mm-hmm. form it, it is what keeps you intellectually challenged, mm-hmm. is what keeps you is also what keeps your identity together, paradoxically. It's interesting that it just went from um, the stomach to the head in a certain way. That, that, so the idea of it keeps you constantly alive because you have to interpret reality. That feels like intellectual activity might be too strong. You know, I think that there's sentimental activity, there's... Um, just perceptual activity, all kinds right. of things. But it does pull it a little bit simply from the shock of like your stomach saying, I thought it was going to be pizza and this is not <laughs> pizza, to a set of um, interpretive processes. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship between the stomach and the head? Yes. I mean, for an Italian, I, I, I think the, the connection is very straightforward because sapere and sapore, so to, to know and to taste, are the same word, right? They have the same root. And so for us, food is always culture. There's, it's always mediated by our intellectual experience, which includes the emotional sphere, mm-hmm. um, but but is always mediated through the, the common feature, which is the tongue. So the the language and the flavor are always somehow intertwined. Uh, it's hard to separate them. Yeah, I want to think about that more because I think even the image of the snail for me makes me ask about that. Something like, um, is there a difference between my ingestion of the world, and even that the kind of um, veracity of appetite. Mm -hmm. Like, on the one hand, I I love connecting that to the intellectual appetite to know. Um, On the other hand, part of me, it's not exactly resists, but I have a question there of, isn't it different the kind of diving into a plate of food and the kind of satisfaction one gets? Um, And whatever happens when you have a moment of insight. And I, I just want to sort of frame that by saying, I, I anticipate you telling me they're, they're closer than I think. And, and it may be a very American attitude that says, the food is sort of satisfying my belly, but what I do when I'm thinking about a book, that's very different. So I'm open to that, but I would I, I'd be interested in hearing you talk about it. Uh, yes, I, I think maybe we can 
can take it a step back because um, one of the first thing I noticed when I came to America <laughs> and that my mother is still mad about is the lack of tablecloths. <laughs> um, so I, I've been, I mean, I'm not particularly attached to a tablecloth. I never, I never, I never stopped and thought about the significance of a tablecloth. But now more and more, I, I, I start to think that the tablecloth is the beginning of this sort of transformative relationship that is this process of eating and is sort of the mediator uh, between stomach and brain. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, the tablecloth in Italian transform a, a word that is masculine, tavolo, table, you, you have it too. But when we prepare the table in order to eat and we put a tablecloth on, the table become feminine, mm -hmm. tavola. And it's almost like the beginning of a ritual, mm -hmm. the beginning of um, an act of contemplation in the sense that the tablecloth cuts out a piece of reality from the rest of the world and forces you into a dimension that for a time is um, alien from... Uh, earthly preoccupations. Mm -hmm. And so you sit down, you have this transformed table that invites you, and you cannot help, in a sense. Like, I think, in a sense, the tablecloth forces you to see food as a sort of sacred cultural event mm -hmm. rather than just uh, um, something that satisfies your appetite mm -hmm. or your like, lower appetites, <laughs> let's call them like that. If, um, yeah, no, that's, so. that's really interesting. Um, I wonder about, so when we think about thinking um, and the kind of um, pulling apart and putting together discernment, a kind of um, the different, you know, sort of features of thinking that we work on here at St. John's, sort of honing. Um, what is the parallel with with eating, and and is it connected? I mean, I think that that the earlier thought about tasting and knowing mm -hmm. the world being so close. So as it speaks to knowing the world, what what happens with at the table with the tablecloth? Right. I think it transform. It needs to transform your a, a strict idea of knowing. Um, I think when you when you know through the process of eating, uh, you are conscious of a process that is the process of establishing or finding a way to relate yourself to the world outside you. Mm -hmm. It's a process that calls to sort of your basic biology, so uh, an instinct, an instinct of survival, but also, at least for me, it elevates that simple instinct of survival to a way of understanding yourself. Um, 
in a network of relationship with your land. So the food has a strict relationship with the land you come from, but also with the people that are around you. I mean, for us, the very concept of family means people that sit at the same table together. Mm -hmm. um, so in a sense, you, you could say that it's probably stretching the idea of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Is there a, an equivalent of a kind of aha moment? So at a seminar table, if you have a very good conversation, you might have a collective sort of um, experience or sort of sigh of, wow, we're really right. getting somewhere. Is there something like that? Yeah, and more than getting uh, getting somewhere is getting somewhere together. Uh -huh. Like This feeling of togetherness that to me is so important. I mean, I, I cannot conceive of knowledge as, as a private act. To me, knowledge has to be something that is related to, to a community, mm -hmm. to, to the idea of working together. So that, that's a good example. Um, I mean, Dante writes a whole treatise about eating together mm -hmm. <laughs> and philosophizing, right? So which is the convivio, uh, the, the, the bank, banquet, I think is translated mm -hmm. in English. And, and to me, this idea is very powerful. And I think it reflects our mode of learning around a table. I think it's not by chance that we convene at seminar together and we explore a topic, a topic in a way that is very similar to, to a convivial act, to, mm -hmm. to sort of sharing food. Yeah. Um, so earlier, the, that connection between taste and language, can we talk about language specifically and your experience, you know, speaking <laughs> English rather than Italian? And um, yeah. yeah, can we connect that to this conversation about food? Yeah, it's painful. <laughs> yes, um, I, I have a very very conflictual relationship with English. Um, partly, partly because of that lack of familiarity uh, that sometimes stifles me. You know, I, I, I am convinced that language is, uh, is one of the best heuristic tools that we have. You, you know the world through language and the, the richer and the more complex is your language, the more complex is your idea of the reality outside and inside you. So for me, sometimes using English uh, is always a very interesting but also painful process. <laughs> I lived in Italy until I was... Uh, 28, I think. And, and I was one of those people that try to really hone their language skill, uh, try to um, refine their, their relationship with language because I thought that language is such a powerful tool. It makes people change their mind. It makes people feel things. Mm -hmm. 
And so now I'm, I am, I'm trying to, to find my way through this different language uh, as an adult. So it's an interesting process because technically I am 14 <laughs> in English. <laughs> so I, I um, uh, 14, but with an adult brain, right? <laughs> or, or with a more adult brain. I, I, I don't want to say that 14 <laughs> years old are not adults. Um, so, so it's, so I, that's why I started with the gastropod. I feel, I feel very close to those creatures. Um, I mean, I like to adhere to language and I like language to pass through me. Mm -hmm. And I see language as a very transformative experience. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes with English, uh, it's a challenge. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because um, I think one of the things that we say to our students um, is something like, we come into the classroom often with preconceived notions, even preconceived ways of talking about important things um, that we may disrupt in the classroom right. and that might call on them to use words about familiar topics that are new to them. Um, I had a, a seminar partner early on in my time at St. John's who would call students out who used words, things like, I don't know, psychology or mm -hmm. totalizing words to encapsulate it, a whole, a whole set of things. And he would slow them down and say, well, what do you actually mean by that? And suddenly they were in a position to, to sort that out in language that they wouldn't normally use, you know, and often simpler terms. Um, so I feel like one of the things that we, we tend to think is that a disruption of the natural flow might be a good thing. And, and if you think about the music of language, it might, mm -hmm. it, it might not be as elegant, actually, at the beginning, but there might be something useful to that. So I wonder what you, on the one hand, not being at home in the language, it absolutely makes sense to me that that could feel painful and as though maybe you couldn't quite get to the heart of your thought. Um, on the other hand, one of the tools we use, teaching tools we use, is to try to disrupt the flow of language, the ordinary music of language to say, you know, did you make that song? Or are you just singing what everybody else is singing? So how do you think about that kind of disruptive character? Has that been led to insight for you? Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and... That's what I was trying to say in the sense of uh, eat and being devoured, right? Um, I, my, my relationship with English is always one of wonder or wonderment. <laughs> I don't know, wonder, I guess. Um, because uh, it's something that... That I always, that I, I, I don't, I don't take for granted. So is a, is a tool that I have to keep shaping, honing. Mm -hmm. And that allows me, in a sense, uh, uh, an interesting, different 
perspective on on the language as, as a tool for knowledge. Um, in a sense, I think the hardest and the most helpful thing for me with English is trying to be ironical mm -hmm. with, with the language. Irony, comedy are, are absolutely like cultural phenomenon. They, 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 are, they are imbued in, in, in the place, in, in, in the culture you come from. Um, Italian humor is very dark. <laughs> uh, but, but comedy and irony have an interesting mechanism that always helps me um, when, I, when I need to try to understand my relationship with English. Mm. Because they always force you out of the, of the word, of, of the meaning, right? They force you, they force, in a sense, a foreign perspective mm -hmm. on reality and, and, and on uh, what you want to signify or denote. Mm -hmm with your speech. So, so in a sense, irony for me is the most difficult thing, but also the most helpful thing because, because of this, um, this pushing me out and forcing me into reconstruct a path mm -hmm. to the, to the word, mm -hmm. um, or to, to the way I want to seize a reality with my speech. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, that's an interesting thing. And I was reflecting about this. Actually, um, irony is again linked to, to the, the throat and eating. So the, the term goliardic mm -hmm. comes from gola. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> Again, we're back to food. <laughs> yeah, we're back to food. I mean, I have some instinct, although I've, I'm feeling pulled away from it, that I, again, and I, I sort of have asked it already, but something about the immediacy of, of taste and, and our relationship to food. And I, um, I guess I could go in the other direction and, and say where one, we might often distinguish between, as you put it, sort of the lower pleasure, if you think about it that way, um, of, of food and whatever we're doing with our thinking. But I think it's interesting that, that, uh, visual you gave us of, of the, the table and the tablecloth and the ritual, um, involved with eating together and thinking about thinking as ritual. Mm. Not simply as I think it's too easy to say, well, when we eat food, we're taking something from the outside world, putting it in. So clearly we're having an encounter because we are rational beings and it's going to relate to knowledge in some respect. But that's a more kind of brute contact, whereas with the intellect and the kind of processing that goes on with language, there's something more complex going on. But I think it's cool to turn it on its head where, where thinking is concerned. I think about that sometimes with what happens in seminar, the kind of activity we might say, 
we're sitting together with the same text. We dissect what goes on. We pull out the imp important passages and come to some common understanding. And now we have some sort of knowledge that we sort of put in our knowledge bank. There's some truth to that, but we also have a, a communal experience in that moment. We have, if we're lucky enough to have that kind of moment of insight, that that has kind of more the, um, it, it, it feels a little bit more like the tasting of, of, of a good flavor than a kind of intellectual ratcheting up of, of truth claims. There is something ex fundamentally experiential right. about what happens in the classroom. So that's, that's an interesting turn for me to say, what is ritualistic about our, our seminar process, our thinking together? And, and does that shed light on a kind of more intellectual knowing in a way that we don't typically think? Yes, that, that, that's a that's a very, very complex question. Sorry, there's <laughs> a lot there. No, no, I, I'm I'm gonna try to to pull it apart um, and then try to take it back. Um, yeah, the, the process of seminar again is something extremely fascinating but extremely scary. Um, you you enter that room. And you are completely naked. You you don't have the usual tool that a normal lecturer or professor has, right? You don't have PowerPoints. You don't have your lesson plan. And again, you enter the seminar room, and somehow you need to be aware that your your horizons or, or your boundaries are gonna be pushed and pulled um, in order to attend to this beautiful process, which is making sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to think that the process of making sense uh, stands exactly at the intersection between theory and practice. So this, this experiential aspect mm -hmm. That, that you were talking about, this sort of knowing true doing, mm -hmm. I think is fundamental. And that's, and what we're doing in seminar is sort of tinkering with ideas, um, modifying them, turning them on their heads, mm -hmm. putting them there on the table, half dismembered, and then see what, how, in a way, putting them back together produces that sense mm -hmm. that we were looking for when we're lucky. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I, I, I see, um, I see, and I deeply feel that, that dimension of um, embodiment that, mm -hmm. that happens in seminar. That's why when I started, we were on Zoom, and I think I, uh, I started the experience of seminar with a, with a sort of distorted perspective mm -hmm. on it, precisely because I think that this experience needs bodies around the table, mm -hmm. not just disembodied minds in, in, in the nice little Zoom boxes. Mm -hmm. um, so there's something about the presence 
of, of, of students and teacher around the table that doesn't generate any sort of hierarchy that's also very disarming right? uh, among people uh, that that is part that, that is a, a very fundamental part of the process of understanding a text and understanding how a text um, what kind of light a text shed about our being human uh, our experiences human beings. Um, a question that's sort of been running around and partly because of Nietzsche's thinking about sort of indigestion mm. when a certain kind of thinking yields indigestion. And I, I guess in the model that we're working on, I wonder a little bit about indigestion, both with food and with, um, with understanding um, what yeah, what do we think is going on there when something is more or less digestible? Right. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, right. Yeah. Again, it connects. I, I think digestible and undigestible connects with this idea of taste and with the fact that for us, taste is an aesthetic sort of category. Mm -hmm. um, we sort of, in, in philosophy, I think we, we, we lost the connection between the more basic sense of taste, which is like tasting with our tongues. But I think um, the idea of in, indigest, in, indigest, indigestion or mm -hmm. digestibility, mm -hmm. is that even a word? Yeah. <laughs> um, is strictly connect with good taste and bad taste. Mm -hmm. um, I think in, in medieval, treaties about food, um, bad taste was not even conceived of. Every taste was always good taste, and good taste led to digestibility. Mm -hmm. So probably they, they didn't know about Big Macs. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for us, um, in seminar, the, this idea that ideas might be indigestible becomes a very a very complicated topic um, yeah it's <laughs> yeah this idea of what does what does it happen when, when you cannot digest an idea? How do you react mm -hmm. to that? I mean, we, we know the bodily <laughs> reaction to indigestion, right. but how does the mind process processes uh, an idea that is indigestible? And also, I think that in a sense, indigestion might be welcome when we talk about knowledge. Um, sometimes things that are hard to swallow mm -hmm. or hard to, to process are the things that we actually have to push mm -hmm. on and are sometimes the things that give us a, a more complete idea of the reality we'll, we're dealing with. 
Yeah, it's tricky I, I because the language of indigestion and the bodily consequences, mm-hmm. I feel like are not totally represented by what happens when we're sort of churning on a mm-hmm. thought that hasn't been incorporated in yet. There's something pleasure, at least yes. for me, right? It's, yes, exactly. It's very, it's pleasurable and it's, I can go on a run and be working on something. Um, so that doesn't quite feel like indigestion. I wonder about other ideas that have that the sort of negative connotations. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't want to go deep into Nietzsche, but I think he has some idea that there are certain ways of, of sort of thinking or being in the world that make us function more sort of sluggishly, mm-hmm. like that that quality of indigestion of sort of you are maybe incorporating, but with with excess or refuse that makes you less vibrant, less whole. So it might not occur to you when you're thinking as, wait, how do I get through this block? Like, how am I putting these pieces together? And more of a just not being sort of at the height of your thinking or enlivened, let's say, the opposite of being enlivened by mm-hmm. a thinking process and sort of slowed down and and gaseous in your thinking or something like that, which is slightly different. No, I see. And I might connect actually that to the futurist, the Italian futurist movement. Um, <laughs> again, they, they they wrote a treatise, um, Marinetti wrote a treatise, which is called Against Pasta. Mm-hmm. And the futurist hated pasta because it makes Italian sluggish. It makes Italians unable to think. When you eat a big plate of pasta, you become sort of uh, toned down, dull. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and in that sense, I can see uh, Nietzsche connected mm-hmm. with that, that idea of um, a sort of over overfeeding oneself mm-hmm. and, and becoming oppressed by your ideas and not being able to navigate navigate mm-hmm. the world with the same sort of agility that I don't know a plate of rice might give you. <laughs> yeah. So um, and but I'm wondering about our our seminar process and I'm wondering about this idea of overfeeding. Does that ever happen? Does that ever happen at a table at St. John? I mean, is, is that even possible for students to be um, feeling a sense of over uh, overstimulation or over mm-hmm. you know, like, sort of darkening and dulling of their faculties. I'm, I'm trying to think how does that happen for for our seminar process? Yeah, that's a hard question. I'm not sure. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of what we were talking about earlier. I don't know if this is right, but wondering whether if people come in sort of with preconceived notions, mm. but fleshed out ones so they could talk at length 
and sort of, I think I said earlier, that, you know, sing a song that isn't theirs, but right. sing it nonetheless and have a kind of stimulating effect that the, the other people in the classroom are both familiar with because it's the discourse that's already out there. Mm -hmm. But something like that, I wonder about a kind of joint song that could be full of a kind of energy, but not what we're hoping to get out of seminar, which really oh, is about the, the tapping into a a thinking that hasn't happened before. I'm not sure. I That's see. my no, reaction. Oh, I see what I see. What you mean? Um, I, I would call that uh, homogenized. Uh, you know, the baby food mm -hmm. that is pre-chewed for them. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think in that regard, yes, in a sense, is a sort of undigestible product because it has already been chewed right. <laughs> by other people, and you're just sort of. Um, you're not going through the process mm -hmm. of, of tackling and wrestling mm -hmm. with ideas because you come in with, uh, you know, your, your nice and easy jar of Gerber or whatever it is. Um, so I think that that's very, that's a dangerous part of seminar. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like where, when our students, um, come in with that perspective um, and with, with associating that with an idea more than the indigestion, like pre-chewed food, mm -hmm. that makes it even more disgusting for me. <laughs> you gotta make the effort. You gotta go through uh, the idea of processing a thought, the mm -hmm. idea of like, this idea of originality, which it's a dangerous word to yeah. use, but the idea of having done the work of confronting the text mm -hmm. and, and being brave enough to put on the table um, or to show on the table the effects that the text had on you, mm -hmm. not on... Lacan or Derrida or whoever. But it makes me, so the idea that maybe digestibility when it comes to thinking requires a strange kind of discomfort followed mm -hmm. by right. a processing that integrates things rather than the pre-chewed already right. integrated. What about um, flavors? What about mm. going back to real food? Right. Is there something? I, I feel like I could learn from you about this because I'm not sure I I do eat food in that way, <laughs> even though I'm in snow. Really, though, I think that there, there is a sense, um, the idea of it being very functional in, in American culture. I think that's true, largely. You don't set the table in the same way. Although I am, we do at my house. I grew up that way and I make sure we always we set the table. Um, but I do think there is a kind of distance from that deeper mm -hmm. relationship. But my question was really about that, that notion of it taking work in some respect that I think we can see at the seminar table. What, what would that look like at the level of... And, and I think you 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 just expressed in a sense that that idea of flavor and and taste, because um, I think that when 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 you read a text or or when you read poetry, your understanding doesn't just come from from an intellectual mm -hmm. 
mediation. Uh, but it comes from actually getting close to the word, doing work on the word, which is similar to the process of extracting flavor and tasting. Um, so I, I think that even if in, in the proper setting of, of table and tablecloth, you might feel alien from <laughs> that idea of, of understanding flavor, I think you have a perfect understanding of what, what ultimately flavor means in the context of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking also about this, this coming together of intellect and practical experience. Um, fire m might be the best metaphor, Prometheus. <laughs> um, so in a sense, in that, in that idea of, of um, giving you a tool that can transform nature into culture, mm -hmm. um, food and knowledge are very similar. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, fire, chewing are, are all ways, like technological ways or biological ways in which we constantly transform nature into culture. Mm -hmm. So, um, maybe we can go back to the original image of the snail, given that we've talked in many ways about um, this process of digesting the world, either intellectually or through our stomachs. Um, and back to the question of home, um, and you brought us to that image immediately. Mm -hmm. And so um, given what we've talked about, how, how have you found home? Um, how, how, does, how do you relate to that snail um, sort of in your journey? Right. Um, I think... I think I mentioned this before. It feels to me that the snail doesn't have a choice. Like somehow it carries its home um, around. I feel I. Well, I, I'm wondering. Do do I have a choice? Do I mean? Can, can you ever sever your ties with your origin, or? Can, can you use that critical distance between, that, that you put between yourself and your origin um, as a way of understanding yourself, um, not simply as a, a direct product and product and consequence of your origin, but mm -hmm. as an individual that um, can grow and integrate 
um, their identity through the relationship of everything that is not home with everything that is not home. So, I, I mean, I often wondered about that. And the idea of home um, started resonating with me, especially when I arrived at St. John's. Um, this might, might feel very, very awkward, but <laughs> when I came here and I started meeting with tutors and with students, I had this strange feeling of, of belonging quote another famous singer, um, these are my people. <laughs> like <laughs> This idea that I, I landed in a place that as unfamiliar uh, as it could be because of being, you know, in a strange country, in a very particular location here in Santa Fe, but that felt immediately like a place where I could... Uh, belong. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of belonging for me has always been a difficult uh, question. I mean, I'm one of those people who is, is hesitant, even, I don't know, join the queue at the post office for, <laughs> for the fear that, ah, I don't, I don't want to be a part of this. <laughs> But when I arrived here for the first time, I, I, I even had this stupid thought, yeah, I'm going to buy this, the t-shirt <laughs> that says St. John's. I, I belong. And I think like moving, moving away from this sort of tr triviality of the t-shirt, mm -hmm. um, the, the reason why I felt I belong is that for the first time, I met people who had my same enthusiasm for the idea of exploring um, life with a continuously renewed outlook. Mm -hmm. I met people who had my same sort of problematic approach to authority where, you know, knowledge is not something that should be in any way giving you any sort of power. It's actually a very um, destabilizing process. And the fact that I saw in, in, in the tutors and in the student this, this ability of feeling comfortable or, or trying to feel comfortable and to find an equilibrium in this um, completely destabilizing framework mm -hmm. um, where knowledge is a constant challenge to yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I felt that, yes, <laughs> this is home. This is as close, mm -hmm. as close of an experience of home as I can get. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it, it is paradoxical that the most destabilizing experience is the one that I embraced as um, a way in order to explore um, familiarity, the concept of mm -hmm. belonging. 
So, um, I know. I mean, that's it's familiar to me, and um, I, it's a nice sort of articulation of what St. John's is. I think for people who have these sort of drives to understand the world in certain ways. I think finding your people is what a lot of people feel when they land here. <laughs> it leaves aside the, the painfulness of the language and probably the great frustration, I imagine, at certain aspects of the food culture here. But I mean, is that part of that sense of like you, this choice question of it's not as though you have a choice, you sort of land in a world where one way or another, maybe for everyone, certain pushes and pulls between this kind of finding a home where your person or soul can grow and thrive and longing for a home that is sort of what nourished and made you what what you are. I, I imagine one experiences that in very heightened ways when you actually leave your you know, home country and culture and, and reroute somewhere else. But it is a familiar right. paradigm to me. Um, yeah, it, it, it's funny because I should add that for me, in a sense, home is not Italy <laughs> anymore. So going through a transformative experience uh, of uprooting yourself, in a sense, if you can ever uproot yourself, there, there's always a sort of, I, I think, I believe you always keep a sort of tether to that origin, mm -hmm. to that point of origin when you where you come from. But, you know, so, sort of moving your, your whole shell <laughs> to, to, to a different culture, a different country, um, which in certain regards is fascinatingly unfamiliar, in certain regards is infuriatingly <laughs> unfamiliar. Um, it, it's sort of a gamble, and I think the, the painful side of it is that when you, when you go through these experiences, that you realize that your identity is is not anymore like Italian, it's not quite American. Um, <laughs> my friends and, and my mother think that I am absolutely <laughs> and uh, like beyond repair American. <laughs> <laughs> but, but clearly I, I don't feel completely American. So I live in a sort of limbo in, in terms of belonging. And, and for me, the experience at St. John's sort of fixed that, that in-between dimension because, in a sense, you feel that there's more to home than just, you know, a sense of familiarity. There's, there's more to home than, than being comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the choice of being part of an intellectual community that satisfies or, or never quite satisfies your need for knowledge, but pushes you mm -hmm. to, 
to that constant challenge of being always hungry. <laughs> well, I think that's such a beautiful image. Maybe we should leave it there. It's been so lovely to talk to you. I Thank learned you. a lot. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, my pleasure. Continuing the Conversation is a 20-episode web and podcast series produced by the St. John's College Communications Office in partnership with 12FPS and a Warehouse Productions. To continue the conversation with St. John's College, which offers a bachelor's degree in liberal arts, in-person and online master's degrees in liberal arts and Eastern classics, as well as Summer Academy for high school students and Summer Classics for lifelong learners, go to sjc.edu.